0: It was July 1944, the world was at war, and America was having a presidential election. Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president at the time, was attempting an unprecedented run at a fourth term in office, and seemed very likely to be re-elected. In fact, he'd go on to win the general election in a landslide. However, for complicated political reasons, internal conflicts within the Democratic Party forced Roosevelt to abandon his longtime vice president, Henry Wallace, in favor of someone party bosses deemed to be more acceptable. So when the party gathered in Chicago for their convention, the race was on to find his replacement. Likely aware of this dynamic, the U.S. senator from Kentucky named Happy Chandler tried to position himself to replace Wallace. He figured he'd be able to consolidate enough support from Southern Democrats in order to get on the ticket, It was a good plan, but it didn't work out. When the convention votes were tallied, Chandler wasn't even on the ballot. Thanks largely to the efforts of a guy named Earl Clements, a member of the Kentucky delegation and Chandler's longtime political rival who advocated against Chandler. Instead, the party elected Harry Truman, a senator from Missouri, to be FDR's running mate. And as the cliche goes, the rest is history. FDR died in 1945 And Truman became the new president. From Chandler's view, Clements cost him a shot at the presidency. However, as things played out, Clements might have unknowingly done him a favor. What happened in Chicago that summer was an event, and a long series of seemingly unrelated events, that ultimately led to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball. And Chandler, as an unlikely ally in that effort, would later be elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. That story is next. This episode of Obscure Ball is brought to you by Alexander's Wood Emporium. It's a small wood shop based in Nashville, Tennessee, and they make wood products to fit your needs, such as custom signs, coasters, and furniture pieces. They even made this really snazzy small league production sign, which if you check out the Obscure Ball Instagram page, I've got a picture of it over there. The website is alexanderswoodemporium.com. You can also contact them at alexanderswoodemporium at gmail.com for inquiries. Now, onto this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called Happy. I go back a long way.
1: I was a newspaper boy in this small western Kentucky town, Cardin, Kentucky. Now, you know a whole lot about this, of course. I wasn't born in the town. I was born on a little hill farm a mile north of Cardin. A mile north between Cardin and Henderson on the Diamond Island Road in, uh, on Bastille Day, Bastille Day in 1898.
0: Very little about Albert Benjamin Chandler's early life would suggest that he'd go on to be a powerful figure in national politics. He seemed to do pretty normal things as a kid, he loved sports, he had a paper route, and learned to play baseball from a local man who hit fly balls to him. He used a glove that he bartered for. As a kid, he'd wait by the train station to do odd jobs for people, and one day, carried the bags for a traveling grocery salesman in exchange for the glove, a prized possession for a young kid in Western Kentucky. Happy claimed that he slept with the glove under his pillow. To listen to him describe it, Chandler's childhood kind of feels like a chapter from a Mark Twain novel. At least that's the sense I got as I went through his oral history. During my research, I came across hours and hours of interviews from the archives at the University of Kentucky. Despite early hardships, like his mother leaving the family when he was a toddler and his brother Robert dying at age 13, Chandler made the most of the hand he was dealt, supporting himself with his paper route and his odd jobs. And it's also clear from listening to him that baseball was always a big part of his life. He was the star of his high school team at Cardin High School, where he also played hoops and football. Later on at Transylvania College, he kept playing sports and earned the nickname Happy, thanks to his jovial personality. Once again, he was the captain and the star of the baseball team. He had a batting average of .456 during his college years and famously pitched the game against Tennessee and future big leaguer Frank Calloway. Happy led Transylvania to a 10 4 win. By his own admission, he didn't have a great assortment of pitches, relying mainly on a fastball to overpower hitters. When he broke his shoulder playing football, this limited his throwing ability. Still, he got a chance to play with a semi pro team in crafted North Dakota.
2: He was in uh, North Dakota one summer, the summer of 1920, and he uh, reportedly threw a no hitter while pitching for a some pro-town team up
0: here. I spoke with Terry Bone, who wrote the official biography for Happy Chandler at the Society for American Baseball Research, also known as Sabre. Terry is from North Dakota and writes almost exclusively about North Dakota baseball events. And Chandler had one of his best baseball moments of his playing career in North Dakota. He was playing in what he described as a barnstorming tour against a team made up of Native Americans from the Manoa tribe. During a doubleheader, Happy hit a game-winning bases-loaded double in Game 1 and followed that up by pitching a no-hitter in Game 2, which Terry just mentioned. From there, he was invited to try out for another pro team in Canada.
2: Apparently that didn't go well, so then he, he kind of gave up on, on baseball and then, um, started a law practice.
0: So instead, he went back to Transylvania, earned his bachelor's degree, and then went to Harvard to earn a law degree coaching high school sports to pay for tuition. He even worked as a coach and scout for the Center College football team. He was actually a key part of a 1921 game when Center beat Harvard 6-0. To To this day, it's considered one of the all-time biggest upsets in college football history. Happy hoped he might be made the head coach for Center, but when that didn't work out, combined with the high cost of tuition, he went back to Kentucky where he finished his law degree at the University of Kentucky. There, he continued to coach high school sports and spent the 1923 season coaching the women's basketball team at Kentucky, leading them to a 7-3 record. Eventually, he earned his law degree and was admitted to the bar. All the while, he kept coaching sports, umpired in the Appalachian League, got married, had kids, practiced law, still scouted for center, you know, just pursued the American dream. But as it often does, a law degree led to politics. And by 1928, Happy was the chair of the Woodford County Democratic Party. He quickly rose through the ranks, too. A commissionership, the state senate, lieutenant governor, and in 1935, he ran for governor and won. He proved to be a talented, charismatic politician, willing to defy convention while endearing himself to the public. Well, he was a tremendous orator.
3: Politicians back in the old days, in the early part of the 1900s, would give long stem-winding full of uh, fire and brimstone, these speeches were. And and when he came on the scene, he changed it entirely. He uh, adopted a style of shorter speeches, punchy speeches that interacted a lot with the crowd. And it wasn't anything for him to just burst into song in the middle of a speech.
0: Ben Chandler was another person I spoke with. Ben is Happy's grandson and namesake and actually had a career in politics too, serving five terms in the U.S. Congress, representing Kentucky's sixth district. His grandfather didn't just reform the way politicians talked. He quickly reformed the state of Kentucky, reorganizing the government to make it more efficient, paying off the state's debts, and using the savings from that to improve the state's infrastructure and education systems. He set up a teacher's pension fund, and while he wasn't able to desegregate the schools then, He was able to give grant money to black students who wanted to go to college in other states. He advocated for prison reform, increased funding for hospitals, outlawed child labor, and banned mine owners from becoming sheriffs, endearing him to workers all over the state. He even appointed the first woman to the Board of Trustees at the University of Kentucky. Happy was a massively popular governor and eventually set his sights on the White House. But in order to do so, he first figured he needed to get into the Senate. So he challenged a sitting senator for the Democratic primary in 1938. To this day, it's considered one of the wildest party primaries in election history. The Hatch Act came about to some extent because
3: of that primary. Uh, He ran against the majority leader in the Democratic Party, Alvin Barkley, who later became Truman's vice president. And he was the sitting governor of the state. So you had the sitting governor going against the majority leader of the United States Senate in a primary. You know, you just don't see that
0: sort of thing ever. Ben and I probably spoke for two hours. We talked about everything from the election to minor league baseball. But mostly, we talked about his grandfather. We traveled together. He took me around the state quite a bit. We
3: went to baseball games together, UK basketball games together. I learned a great deal of life lessons from him. And he told me lots of stories and and lots of stories about uh, baseball, too, about his time in baseball. I still remember, you know, he had lots of contacts and it wasn't wasn't unusual at all for Ted Williams or Joe DiMaggio or the owners of the Washington Senators, uh, the Griffith family, or, you know, you name it. Those folks
0: from time to time would just be sitting in our living room when I was a kid. So how did Happy Chandler This folksy, charismatic politician from rural Kentucky ended up being friends with the likes of Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams. Well, for starters, he was badly defeated in that 38 primary. Still, he ended up in the Senate a year later when Senator M.M. Logan died, leaving a vacant seat. Chandler resigned as governor, ran for the Senate seat in a special election, and won. His time as a senator was complicated. While his party finally began to embrace civil rights and alliances were being formed with African Americans, Happy upset some folks at the NAACP for voting against the Anti-Lynching Act and opposing the repeal of the poll tax. In fact, they were so upset that the Louisville chapter backed his challenger in the 42 Democratic primary, though Happy won both the primary and the general election. It's worth pointing out that Chandler defended these decisions on technical grounds, making it clear that he was morally opposed to lynching but disagreed with certain aspects of the bill. It's tricky business, trying to parse someone's motives nearly 80 years after the fact, but based on conversations I've had and the research I've done, I do feel like something happened with Happy around 1943. Well, actually, a lot of things happened leading up to that. As you probably know, Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, setting off a whole world war, and then America got involved officially in December of 41, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. As a result of the war, Chandler was appointed to the Military Affairs Committee in 1943 and traveled the world, meeting with American troops. He seemed particularly moved by black soldiers who were willing to fight and die for a country that treated them so unequally. This is important, and it's going to come back again later. But I'm going to posit it was important for Happy Chandler as a person, and it affected how he'd govern later in life when he again served as governor of Kentucky but it was also important for the game of baseball. But his time in the Senate would be pretty short-lived. Because more things happened. One of those things is what I already mentioned, Happy's foiled attempt at the vice presidency. This is one of those events that the more I read about it, the more bizarre it seems to me. First of all, the gumption of Happy Chandler. He had just begun his first full term as a senator when he tried to finagle his way onto the ticket to replace a massively popular vice president, Henry Wallace, during a national convention. This was ambitious, to say the least. The politics of it was also pretty surprising. I've already mentioned Earl Clements. The fact that Clements and Chandler ended up as rivals is equally as strange. They were roughly the same age, both came from small Kentucky towns, and around 1914, They were both named to the same all-regional high school basketball team. Happy later referred to him as a great boyhood friend. That great friendship was temporarily put on hold thanks to politics. Here's Ben Chandler again.
3: Earl Clements was a congressman, I think, in 1944. I believe. I don't know how much clout he ultimately had, but he was always a political adversary of my grandfathers. And That goes back to 1935. He was the campaign manager for the fellow that my grandfather beat in the Democratic primary. And there were two factions in Kentucky on the Democratic side for years. One was my grandfather's, and then the other one was essentially Earl Clements' faction. And Clements ultimately became assistant majority leader of the U.S. Senate under Johnson, and was also governor of Kentucky from 1947 to 1951. He, he was a big force in Kentucky politics back then, and I guarantee you, he lobbied against my
0: grandfather for whatever it was. Whatever it was, Happy seemed to downplay the rivalry years later, saying it was more politics than personal, and even campaigned for Clements when he ran for governor in '47. But the decision Clements made to bungle Chandler's run for the VP slot was hugely consequential, because, finally, it brings us to the main point of this episode. In November of 1944, another thing that happened was that Commissioner of Baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, died. He was the game's first ever commissioner, and he'd had the job since 1920. Like Chandler, he came from the world of politics. He spent 17 years as a federal judge before becoming commissioner, a role that was becoming increasingly important for the game. With him gone, team owners again looked to somebody from Washington to fill the spot. With the war still going on, league owners wanted someone who could maybe prevent players from being drafted. Happy quickly threw his hat in the ring, flat out telling the sporting news that he wanted the job. But the competition was stiff. Names like J. Edgar Hoover, James Farley, the Postmaster General, John W. Bricker, a U.S. Senator from Ohio, Frank Lausch, the Governor of Ohio, Robert Patterson, the Undersecretary of War and Ford Frick, the president of the National League, were being thrown around. While these names might not resonate as much now, they were heavy hitters at the time. When the owners met in Cleveland in April of 1945 to vote on the new commissioner, Happy wasn't even on the short list, much like a year earlier at the DNC. In fact, a lot of people felt like Ford Frick seemed almost like a shoe-in. Almost. Warren Giles, owner of the Cincinnati Reds, And Phil Wrigley, who of course owned the Cubs, made it known that they didn't want Ford, for whatever reason. That complicated things. Whoever the new commissioner would be needed a two-thirds majority vote, which turned out to be a pretty difficult task to accomplish. And that provided Chandler with the opportunity he needed. The day before the meeting took place, Chandler is known to have met with Howard Hughes and John Gottlieb two business owners who had a lot of influence with owners in Major League Baseball. He also had two more powerful people in his corner, according to Terry.
2: He had the support almost exclusively from two powerful owners, Larry McPhail of the Yankees and uh, Horace Stoneham of the Giants. They were pretty well in in Chandler's corner the whole way, and they carried a lot of weight among the other owners.
0: McPhail seemed especially interested in Chandler, the two had met years earlier when Happy was still governor of Kentucky and McPhail was the GM of the Reds. As an avid baseball fan, Happy often went to games in Cincinnati and got to know McPhell pretty well. To those who knew them, it probably seemed like an odd pair. McPhell was this brilliant baseball executive who also had a severe drinking problem and a penchant for bizarre and at times erratic behavior. And Happy Chandler the folksy, quick-witted governor from Kentucky. But they hit it off, and while they had their differences over the years, they developed a deep and abiding friendship, which proved helpful in 1945. At that point, McFell had left Cincinnati and bought a one-third stake in the Yankees, meaning that he had a vote on the new commissioner. He also, as Terry said, had a lot of pull with the other owners. Happy described him as a dominating fellow. Which makes sense. He went so far as to block the other 22 candidates while lobbying on Chandler's behalf. With no clear frontrunner, the owners were at an impasse. So they took an informal vote of sorts, with team owners listing their preferred candidates. That means you had 16 different lists of different candidates. But the name that seemed to keep appearing at the top of the list was Happy Chandler. This was surprising to a lot of people, including Happy himself. You could argue, as some have, that he seemed at the time like a compromise candidate. But he ultimately fit the bill. He was from politics, which they wanted. Again, figuring his influence in Washington and his political skills would come in handy, which they did.
2: You know, they were still dealing with the antitrust issue in baseball, and the owners felt it was important to have someone with some connections in Washington to help protect their interests around that issue.
0: He got the job, and soon, he changed the game of baseball forever. More on that after the break. Now here's a man who's had what I would call a most varied career as a composer and record producer. With more than 150 albums to his credit, spanning a 40-year career, Peter Link is what you might call a working man's composer. Twice nominated for a Tony Award on Broadway, and with a million-selling record to his credit, and winner of the New York Theater Critics Drama Desk Award, Link has seen great success in film scoring, Broadway musicals, pop music, gospel, television, and he's even written ballets for the Joffrey Ballet. Now he presents his life work in a podcast series called Scattershot Symphony, the music of Peter Link. Though each episode is 90% music, he manages to regale us with fascinating stories and anecdotes related to his music over the years. Each episode looks at a different movement in the symphony of his life's work. So if you love music, and who doesn't, You'll love getting an insider's listen to the work, the music, the stories around the life in music. That Scattershot Symphony, the music of Peter Link. Available now wherever you get podcasts.
1: And then they thought that uh, they would curtail the powers of the commissioner, which I didn't let them do. And of course, they, they were disappointed right away because my God, I, I told them, I said, I didn't take this job just to liquidate the commissioner's office. You're going to observe certain rules of conduct that you've agreed to.
0: Well, if there was a honeymoon between Chandler and the owners, it was pretty short-lived. First of all, the press was a little bit hard on him early on. They lamented his Southern drawl and his love of singing old folk songs. He annoyed the owners by moving the commissioner's office from Chicago to Cincinnati, something he later said he did because it was about an hour's drive from his house. Then he made new rules that prevented the owners from gambling. Apparently, these owners were an unwieldy bunch who loved to gamble on horse racing. The owners didn't care for these changes. Actually, they didn't like many of his changes. They wanted a commissioner who would stand aside and let them do whatever they wanted, something they must have grown to expect in Landis. With Happy Chandler, they pretty much got the opposite. He took the job seriously and made it known that there was a new sheriff in town. It turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to baseball.
2: The owners employed him, but he was, often took the side of the players. First example was he one year he um, took the revenues from the World Series and started a player's pension fund. Owners didn't like that, but that was an example of how he uh, was supported by the players' uh, Uh, Their interests, in a lot of ways, much more than
0: the owner's. Tom Yawkey, who owned the Red Sox, took that even further and said that happy was the players, the fans, the press, everybody's commissioner, but the men who pay. It seems like a fitting title. Nearly everything he did as commissioner was done for the players and the game. Terry Bone mentioned the players' pension fund. He paid for that by orchestrating a deal to broadcast the World Series on the radio and later on TV netting multi-year contracts worth millions of dollars. This was a pretty brilliant move on his part. You see, in 1947, there were maybe a few thousand TV sets in the country. Possibly a bit more, but nothing like you have today. But Happy understood that TV was on the verge of a big breakthrough, so he negotiated a large contract with NBC. It worked out well. He used the money not to enrich himself or the owners, but to set up the player's pension fund. He later said he was inspired to do this after meeting a former ball player named Grover Cleveland Alexander. Now Alexander, in his heyday, was one of the premier stars of the game. But when he retired with very little money, he had to go on these amateur barnstorming tours just to make ends meet. Happy saw that and figured anyone who served the game as well as Alexander should retire with dignity. He also fought to keep ticket prices low enough so more fans could come out and enjoy the games. These moves made him popular among the players and the fans. The press also came around. But the owners never did, no matter how much he accomplished. And he accomplished a lot. If all Happy Chandler ever did was set up the players' pension fund, he'd have been a great commissioner. But he went well beyond that. The most important thing he did was approved the contract of Jackie Robinson. Because by the time he was commissioner in 1945, another thing that had happened, well, to be more accurate, had been happening for quite some time, was that black people had been playing baseball for as long as white people had. I'm embarrassed to admit, I didn't know a lot about African Americans in baseball before Robinson came along. So again, I started asking around.
4: Well, I'm Dr. Raymond Doswell. I'm the Vice President of Curatorial Services here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri.
0: Dr. Doswell explained to me the history of the Negro Leagues and the impact they had on baseball.
4: So primarily what we describe as the Negro Leagues, plural, is the highest level of professional baseball available to African-American and Afro-Latino athletes in the United States. From roughly 1920 to 1960, there's a business structure of teams teams cooperating with each other to create league schedules, common opponents, postseason, some levels of revenue sharing and these kinds of things. Uh, African-Americans had been involved in baseball almost since its inception in the United States and various ball and stick games. Slaves watched those and played those games and the development of baseball as a Professional, semi professional amateur sport in the 1800s was something that African Americans could witness when they, during slavery and post slavery, especially in the antebellum period, uh, where black soldiers certainly uh, picked up the game and saw the game and played it. And there were a number of of people who uh, excelled at the game as individual players and individual teams were formed in the 18, uh, say the 1870s, 1880s uh, period. Of note, There were gentlemen like Moses Fleetwood Walker and his brother Weldy who picked up and played the game of baseball at Oberlin College. Well, they played before that, but they attended Oberlin College and Abolitionist College where they were able to compete with uh, and against white players uh, as well as play in what would be the early versions of what you might say is Major League
0: Baseball. That's an interesting point because it wasn't until sometime in the mid to late 1880s when baseball became a commercial enterprise that this informal rule banning black players came about. Team owners simply didn't want black players on their teams, so black communities organized and started their own leagues. Now this is a big deal for a lot of reasons. Mainly because if the Negro Leagues didn't exist and black players weren't so talented and willing to take that leap, This might not even be a conversation. Also, anyone who knew baseball at the time understood that black players were just as good as their white counterparts. However, the Negro Leagues were impacted by the Depression and war. And without the financial stability of MLB, black players didn't make nearly the amount of money that white players could. Which isn't to say that things were going awesome in the majors, because they weren't. They too were affected by the Depression and the war which saw some of their top players drafted during the height of their careers. Attendance was starting to slump, and owners had to get pretty creative to fix this. Branch Rickey, who owned the Brooklyn Dodgers, figured he had a solution. He looked at the Negro Leagues as a great opportunity, and knew that he could recruit somebody to come play for him. The other owners were very much against this, and they thought that by hiring Happy Chandler, you know, this guy from the South, That could be a solution to this problem. Chandler said so himself later on.
1: The owners had that in mind. It wasn't that they wanted to be caught with their pants down, and they knew I was a Southerner, and they thought I'd be the last fellow that would uh, agree to let a black boy play.
0: So Branch Rickey was the only team owner who actively supported integration, and he was the one who recruited Jackie Robinson, a player who was already a well-known athlete. But was he the best player in the Negro Leagues?
4: There were better players or, or players who were considered better and certainly more famous players, although he was a famous athlete in, the, in that, certainly in the black community, because they knew him from UCLA, having played in the Rose Bowl and, and, and other things. When he joined the Army, uh, there were news articles about that in, many, in black newspapers and things like that. Uh, so he was a known commodity, but certainly not for baseball when you consider uh, there were famous players like Satchel Page and Josh Gibson, although near the end of his career playing days, uh, and Monty Irving and others. And Irving ended up going to the military and some might have said that he was probably the player that might have been coveted maybe even as much by Ricky and others as Robinson was. Uh, but Irvin had spent some time military and probably didn't think that he was ready for the opportunity to be the first player considering his military experiences and and some racism that he experienced there.
0: So there was plenty of talent in the Negro Leagues, and there were many players who are ready to make the jump to the majors. But still, the other 15 MLB owners stood firm against integration. In fact, they took a secret vote on it. Ben Chandler, who, remember, is Happy's grandson and knew his grandfather and studied his life pretty closely, sums it up pretty well. They had a meeting at the Waldorf Astoria
3: Hotel in New York City, and there were 16 major league teams at the time. Of course, they're 30 now, but back then there were only 16. And they voted. It was supposed to be kept secret, but it was for the commissioner's benefit. They voted to let him know how they felt on the subject. The subject came up, and the vote came back 15 to 1 against bringing
0: Robinson in. Of course, their efforts proved fruitless, and Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. That's not news, and it's certainly not obscure. There are movies and books on the subject, far beyond the caliber of anything I could do. What's maybe not quite as well known, though, is just how crucial of a role Happy Chandler played in that happening. I actually have the desk in my
3: house right now that he and Ricky sat across from each other at. the the same desk. And he said that Ricky came down to Versailles. Uh, They met in my grandfather's cabin back behind his house and they talked about it. And Ricky said to my grandfather, he said, now, commissioner, I can't do this without your blessing. Uh, And the bottom line was that Ricky understood that he couldn't do it without my grandfather's blessing. And my grandfather gave him the green light. He said, Mr. Ricky, you just go right ahead and I'll support you. And that's exactly what he did.
0: This brings into focus again the role of the commissioner. Like I've said, it's widely accepted that black players were at least as good as their white counterparts. And in some cases, as Jackie Robinson proved, they were better. Bill Veck was distinctly aware of this. Veck was a white businessman who grew up watching and admiring the Negro Leagues. He believed that baseball should be integrated and plotted ways to make this happen.
4: One of those stories is that he had wanted to purchase the Philadelphia Phillies and secretly told folks that he was going to stock them with former players of the Newark Eagles black baseball team and once that was found out his plan was nixed.
0: (laughs) Nixed by Landis himself. Now this has been a topic of debate for some time. As a judge, Landis was actually seen as pretty progressive on racial issues at the time. But as commissioner of baseball, he staunchly upheld the informal rule that banned black players from playing in the majors, likely at the behest of the owners. So regardless of what he felt as a person, he played an active role in keeping baseball segregated. So when Happy comes along and backs Branch rookie? well, that was a game changer. I mentioned earlier how when Happy was in the Senate, he made some controversial votes. But I also mentioned how he was assigned to the Military Affairs Committee. And saw young black men fight for this country
3: and die for this country. And his remark, uh, which I thought was quite apt, was, why should young men fight for their country and die for their country and not be able to play the national pastime?
0: So that played a big role in his support for Jackie Robinson, which continued well after he played his first game on April fifteenth, 1947. Because racism being what it was, it wasn't the smoothest transition.
3: He had a fella on his staff named Frenchie Dumoisie. He was a former All American under Adolf Rupp at the University of Kentucky. And he was six foot seven. And by the time he was working for my grandfather, he weighed probably about 350 pounds. So you had a six foot seven, 350 pound fella there in the commissioner's office, and my grandfather sent him on the road to be with Robinson. He specifically had him follow Robinson from city to city and prepare the way, and if there was any indication of difficulty, the person who was going to perpetrate the difficulty got to visit with Frenchie, and you can imagine who got the best of that.
0: As most baseball fans know, Jackie Robinson was the 1947 Rookie of the Year and eventually a Hall of Famer. Larry Doby became the second black player to play in the majors later that season, and within a decade, more than 100 black players helped integrate baseball, many of them some of the all-time greats like Satchel Paige, Don Newcomb, and Willie Mays. It wasn't long before attendance at games skyrocketed, and baseball seemed revived. That said, the effort to fully integrate the game is still an ongoing one. Here's Dr. Doswell again. It's important to talk about these legacies,
4: and many people bring these, this discussion up in the context of the modern game because we're still hovering around between seven and 10% of African-American participation in the game.
0: Happy Chandler helped change baseball. Probably too much for the team owner's liking. There were disputes among owners who didn't like how he handled some things. He also avoided a trade between the White Sox and Yankees due to a salary dispute which alienated him from many of the league owners. In 1950, he tried to negotiate a contract extension and again, needed to get two thirds of the vote, or 12 votes. He got 11. So it was clear that he was not going
3: to get his contract renewed. And they picked a fella, and this is one of the best stories of all, they picked a fella named Ford Frick to replace him. Probably the most controversial thing Ford Frick did in, I think, 14 or so years of being the commissioner of baseball was to put an asterisk by Roger Maris's name. What I mean by that is to tell you that Frick was the owner's man. They, they hired him because they knew that he was going to do exactly what they wanted and that uh, he would be controlled by them. And they asked my grandfather, uh, some folks in the press asked my grandfather what he thought of the hiring of Ford Frick. And he hesitated for a minute and he said, well, they
0: had a vacancy and decided to keep it. It was a bitter split. In a way, it almost seemed like Happy was banished from the game. His contributions to baseball almost seemed to go unnoticed for a long time. And maybe it was just a cautious politician in him. But he never seemed all that interested in receiving praise for what he did. I think that he was determined to do the right thing,
3: but he probably thought politically he could mitigate some of the damage back home by not advertising it too terribly much at the beginning. Now, later on, when it became more of a popular thing to do, he tried to advertise it, and by then it was too late. (laughs) Mm -hmm. By then, Ricky had already gotten all the credit.
0: For his part, Happy went back to Kentucky politics, serving another term as governor from 1955 to 59, where again, he was faced with the issue of segregation. Brown versus Board of Education mandated that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional, but not everyone cooperated. Some governors in the South sent in the National Guard to keep black kids from going to school. So my grandfather, as governor of Kentucky, took the opposite approach.
3: He sent the National Guard down in an area where he actually was born and grew up, he sent the National Guard down to make sure that the black kids did get to go to school.
0: Chandler even turned down an offer from George Wallace to be his running mate. In 1968, Wallace, a staunch segregationist, formed his own political party and was going to make a run at the presidency, and he wanted Chandler to run with him. Chandler refused, citing their differences on race as the main reason. But there was still one last election for Happy. In 1982, more than 30 years after his split from baseball, players who had been impacted by his work and retired remembered his contributions to the game. So the Veterans Committee voted for Chandler to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Ben was there in the crowd to see it that day.
3: It was especially nice for us. We as a family went up there with him, and he was inducted along with Frank Robinson and Hank Aaron. And that was just, uh, I thought, quite fitting that those two uh, very important black stars were uh, brought into the Hall of Fame at the same time he was.
0: Happy maintained a close relationship with many black ballplayers over the years who seemed to appreciate what he did. Don Newcomb and Ray Campanella especially spoke well of him. Despite all of this, Chandler made a horrible and bizarre mistake later in life. In 1988, he was 90 years old and was an honorary member of the Board of Trustees at the University of Kentucky. Because of apartheid, the school had pulled out all of their investments from South Africa, and while discussing this at a board meeting, Happy used the N-word, kind of out of the blue. Understandably, this upset a lot of people, and a group of students held protests at the school until he apologized, which he eventually did. I talked about this part of Chandler's history with Dr. Doswell, and he added some really interesting perspective. He told me the story of a man named Al Campanis. A teammate of Jackie Robinson in the minor leagues, and a longtime Dodger executive, Campanis wasn't an especially well-known player or executive. Why would he be? He played seven games in the bigs before being relegated to an executive role. So the first time the nation really got to meet him was during an interview with Ted Koppel on Nightline. This was also in 1988. He was asked why there weren't more black managers and GMs in the big leagues. Campanus said something to the effect of, they may not have the necessities to do the job. From there, the interview pretty much spiraled out of control. Given the chance to clarify his comments, Campanus went on a bizarre rant, which he concluded by saying black folks didn't have the buoyancy to be good swimmers. It was the epitome of a train wreck, and even the usually stoic couple admonished him, saying... It was some of the most racist garbage he'd ever heard. Campanus was justifiably criticized for his remarks and was fired within 48 hours. And that's pretty much how everybody remembered him. But Dr. Doswell, who's the VP of Curatorial Services at the Negro League Baseball Museum and deals with collecting old baseball items, told me something that not many people may know
4: when I got a chance to meet Campanas' son, and as I learned more about Al Campanas, was that he was one of the players early on who, he he comes just maybe a little bit after Robinson, but certainly helped nurture players like Robinson. He was nurturing players like Roberto Clemente, who originally was a Dodger. He actually had, uh, in some small ways, a very good role in helping to integrate baseball later on.
0: So he related that back to Happy Chandler.
4: It's balanced. Our heroes are complicated. Certainly none of them are perfect. Uh, I learned that in many respects, especially when you're dealing with sports. But it's part of the whole and we can talk historically about the significant acts they did, both good and bad, and exalt one and certainly be critical of the others. So there's a history here. There's a connection to that history that African-Americans share with the game. And the game itself is pivotal to understanding the integration of our country and where we are race relations wise today. And so Chandler is a major pivotal person in understanding that entire landscape of history.
0: It's senior night at the University of Kentucky as the Wildcats honor five seniors and now one of the most emotional moments in sport. Former Governor A.B. Happy Chandler to sing My Old Kentucky Home. The sun shines
1: bright in my old Kentucky home Tis summer,
0: the people are gay In his autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, Frederick Douglass wrote about a song called My Old Kentucky Home. It's an old song with a long history. Douglass praised it, saying it awakened sympathies for the enslaved in which anti-slavery sentiments took root, grow, and flourish. It's also more recently been criticized for its use in blackface performances, which complicates its legacy. But to watch footage of Happy and Ruperina Arena singing the song as all the players joined arms and sang with them, it looked like it was something very special to all of them. It's weirdly poetic, though, that a song with a complicated legacy would be performed by a man with a complicated legacy. People could read about Happy Chandler and draw their own conclusions. Like anyone, he had his flaws, as evidenced by that episode in later life.
3: It complicated his legacy and his history some, but when all's said and done and you look back on things, you review the record. And the record's pretty clear on his career, uh, certainly on race matters. And that, that is that he tried to be a positive force toward bringing races together rather than a divisive force. At a time, frankly, when being divisive might've actually been politically advantageous.
0: Happy Chandler died on June 15, 1991 at the age of 92 in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Gearball is presented by Small League Productions. Episodes are written, edited, and produced by me. Music for this episode and all episodes are from Storyblocks. If you need help starting a new podcast or improving on an existing one, visit smallleaguestew.com to learn how Small League Productions can help you make a handcrafted podcast. A special thanks to Ben Chandler, Dr. Raymond Doswell, and everyone at the Negro League Baseball Museum, Terry Bone and Jacob Pomericke from the Society for American Baseball Research, and to the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History at the University of Kentucky Libraries. And be sure to subscribe to Obscure Ball wherever you listen to podcasts, so you'll be alerted when there's a new episode, which is occasionally.